Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 75 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and boy, do we have a guest today who is worthy of a milestone episode. Michael Eisner, one of the most storied executives in the history of Hollywood. In the 60s and 70s, as a programming executive at ABC, he helped to carry the Alphabet Network from last place to first place among the broadcast networks in virtually every sector. In the 70s and 80s, as a vice president at Paramount, he helped to propel that studio from sixth to first among the majors. And most famously, he served as chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company from the 80s well into the 21st century, a tenure during which the Mouse House's annual revenue grew from $1.5 billion to nearly $31 billion, and its market value went from $1.9 billion to $57.4 billion. Today, the 74-year-old serves as the head of a venture capital firm that he formed after leaving Disney called Tornante, which backs digital and new media projects and produces the critically acclaimed animated series BoJack Horseman, which streams on Netflix. Over the course of our extensive conversation, Eisner talks about many of the people and projects and controversies that have colored his decades-long career. I'm talking about TV shows like Happy Days and Welcome Back, Cotter, Movies like Grease, Ordinary People, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Terms of Endearment, and Beverly Hills Cop, Flashdance, Footloose, Good Morning Vietnam, The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, and the Pirates of the Caribbean films. He opens up about his years of work with Barry Diller at ABC and Paramount, his turbulent relationship with Roy Disney at Disney, and fellow executives like Jeffrey Katzenberg, a close associate at Paramount and Disney who left the latter acrimoniously and went on to form Disney's chief competitor in the world of animated films, DreamWorks Animation, Michael Ovitz, whose famously brief and expensive time at Disney caused Eisner a lot of headaches. Bob and Harvey Weinstein, whose Miramax films he brought to Disney and worked with for years before clashing later on. And Bob Iger, who came to Disney through Eisner's famous Capital Cities ABC purchase and who ultimately succeeded him as the head of Disney. While Eisner was happy to talk about the past, his focus is very much on the present. In fact, we sat down on the very day when Netflix began streaming the critically acclaimed third season of BoJack Horseman, and the New York Times Magazine released a massive profile of it. The Hollywood Reporter's television critic, Daniel Feinberg, no relation, lists the show as one of his top ten of the year, and many others have lauded it as well. It's the current apple of Eisner's eye, and like everything else Eisner's ever done, he is totally committed to its success. It's an in-depth interview with somebody who doesn't give many, so I hope you'll find it as interesting and enlightening as I did. Let's- with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go to that conversation. All right, Mr. Eisner, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We begin every episode by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Okay, first of all, it's Michael, but we'll <laughs> start that way. I was born in Mount Kisco, New York. Grew up in Manhattan and then had a career. I went to high school, went to college, sure. all the usual things and other maybe not so usual things. And, uh, <laughs> Were movies and television a big part of your life as a kid? No. It was a part of my life. Yeah. Um, Broadway was a much bigger part of my life because growing up in Manhattan, what you did on birthdays or anniversaries is you went to a Broadway show where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Today, you take your kids to Chuck E. Cheese or <laughs> Disneyland, hopefully. Right. But when I grew up, it was always Broadway. Then about three blocks from where I grew up were the RKO movie theater, the Lowe's movie theater, the Brandt movie theater, the Grant movie theater. <laughs> so, yes, I would go to double features. I hated... I didn't really like going because they always put you in the children's section. <laughs> and the children's section, the kids were screaming and yelling and right. throwing stuff around and I wanted to watch the movie so I guess I have to take that back movies were part of my upbringing that and Hopalong Cassidy on television but uh, uh, I was just part of the ongoing culture of the 50s sure and so eventually you go off to Denison University at the time of your graduation what did you imagine you would do with your life I had no idea what I was going to do I had uh, I was a pre-med in college pre-med who didn't like the sight of blood and particularly didn't like organic chemistry, which I did in the summer at Columbia and then dropped out and took two English courses instead. Um, I then became an English major and a theater major because I had this girl I wanted to date and she wouldn't date me and I thought if I wrote a play for her she would date me. I wrote a play uh, which was my introduction and this whole entertainment business she was very good in the play actually she still wouldn't date me but <laughs> the play was okay right then I graduated it was the build up the Vietnam War it wasn't quite the Vietnam War and if you were um, going to college or graduate school or getting married you were you were exempt none of which I did hmm. instead uh, I went to Europe to write the great novel or play, I guess, maybe is what I was going to write. I stayed for a couple of weeks, came home, realized quickly that uh, I wasn't a left bank kind of guy. (laughs) Uh, 
eventually, three or four months later, got a job basically as a uh, FCC logging clerk. Really? In other words, I wrote down what time the commercials went on at NBC. Okay, yeah. And, and noted whether they were in black and white or color. And I could read a book or write. And I felt in great detail that one second space between programming and a commercial. So I could be working and I'd hear that silence. I'd look at my watch, I'd write down what time it was, and that was my job. Having been an usher the summer before at NBC, between my junior and senior year, working backstage at The Tonight Show and uh, The Price is Right and uh, Jeopardy. So having had a little taste of the of the broadcast network life at NBC and CBS, you now wind up at ABC. How did that come about? Well, I wrote, uh, I was dating uh, the woman who is now my wife, but uh, I, I wrote about, I don't know, 100 letters to try to get a job. Uh, I was working at CBS putting the commercials in uh, Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll and Quick Draw McGraw and trying to think of the rest of them. Uh, I did put the commercials in the Ed Sullivan show, but I thought maybe I could do better. So I wrote all these letters. Uh, I had a lot of interviews, none of which were successful. They all, they all said, uh, geez, the guy at PBS who my father got me an interview with told me it was the worst industry in the world and why I was even thinking about it. My father, when I told him about it, was furious. How can a guy be like a big deal at PBS, this is in the 60s, yeah. and not be an advocate of, uh, of what he did, which was a really lesson to me later that any time I met with anybody who really wanted to be in the business, I was the opposite. That's yeah, the greatest place to be. You got to do this. Uh, give up everything. Uh, I would send him essays of, uh, of why culture is so important, but I didn't get that. Eventually, I got a response from a vice president at ABC who was looking for an assistant. One thing led to another, and I got a job at ABC. Who was that vice president? He was a guy that named Ted Fetter. Terrific guy, had been at ABC since they became a network when they were the Blue Network. I didn't know when I went to work for him that he was actually on his way out. Mm -hmm. So I was working for a vice president without any power. (laughs) But you know, when you get somebody's dry cleaning, it doesn't really matter whether they have power or not. (laughs) And uh, Barry Diller was working for Vice President Len Goldberg, who was head of the department, who did have power. We both started within a couple of months of each other. And what were your what were your first impressions of each other? I mean, it seems that we should tease the fact because we're gonna he'll come up in other things in this conversation. Did and you guys at multiple places work together? Did you hit it off right away? And and why do you think you did work well together? Well, you have to understand. I was I did I had an extremely low level job. <laughs> And I was working for a person who they were not giving anything to do to because they were figuring out a way to get rid of him, which I thought was terrible. Um, Barry, on the other hand, was working for the the big cheese. But here's the interesting thing. I'm sure I think I've told this story. I, I had an interview with this guy who was on his way out, a terrific guy, Ted Fetter. And I then was told I had an interview with the head of the department. Leonard Goldberg, who I'm still friendly with. I think uh, a decade older than me at the time and still a decade <laughs> older than me. 
which I thought was like 12 decades old. Right, right. He was the head of the department. So I came to the 37th floor of the ABC building on 6th Avenue, and I said to the receptionist, Michael Eisner, to see Leonard Goldberg. Fine, Mr. Eisner. And out he came. And I had a short interview with him. I think it was an obligatory interview. And then I went to dinner with my brother-in-law, who grew up in the same building as Len Goldberg. And he said, how did it go? I said, I, I think it went all right. Uh, he's shorter than I thought he was. And, and Norman, my brother-in-law, said, no, he's not short. I said, well, he looks shorter to me than what you described, and he's bald. No, he's not bald. <laughs> so wait a second. I'm telling you, he was short, and he was, he was shorter than, than 6'3", or whatever it was, and he was bald. It turns out I interviewed with Barry Diller, who never told me it was Barry Diller. Len Goldberg sent his assistant to get rid of me, kind of. Oh my God. He came out and said, oh, you're Michael Eisner, follow me. I followed him into a big office because he was a big deal assistant. Right. And that was the first time I met Barry Diller. <laughs> I had no idea that, that it wasn't fantastic. Len Goldberg. <laughs> so we started off on an interesting right, right. track. So after that, I guess also as your responsibilities grew there, please correct me if any of this is wrong, but you began playing a a larger role in Saturday morning children's programming, and then after something like five years, you were now in charge of primetime programming there. So you clearly moved up the, the ranks pretty quickly there. I think I was in every office on the 37th floor of the ABC building. You know, I started off as a factotum, and then I was kind of in the specials and talent department, and I did... Nobody else wanted to do this, so I was kind of the, the lead on a, on, a, on a show called Feeling Groovy at Marine World because ABC owned Marine World, which is no longer there in San Francisco, which had a water skiing elephant. And they also had a commitment to build Bing Crosby to get his golf tournament, so I put together Bing Crosby at Marine World. <laughs> and because they owned Marine World, the... CEO of ABC, the big deals at ABC were interested in this special, otherwise they would have had no interest. Right. So I had a screening of Feeling Groovy <laughs> at Marine World. For all the big guys. Um, so that's how I kind of like met people. And then I went into, I think I went into the primetime development department and worked on all their those shows in, in that era, Mod Squad and we developed uh, All in the Family and didn't put it on the air and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then the daytime and children's vice president opened up, which nobody wanted. <laughs> so I raised my hand and thought, well, if I can do well with daytime and children's programming, maybe that'll be a, a track forward. So I put on, I ABC put on, I worked on it. I worked with Agnes Nixon on uh, All My Children and One Life to Live, General Hospital, put two of the three on the air. Uh, and then I was in charge with children's programming. ABC was non-existent in the children's programming area. CBS under Fred Silver was the big, the big issue there. And we became number one first season because I had seen the Jackson 5 in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson was like 10. And we put them on an animation... Then we put on the Osmond Brothers in animation, and then we put on Batman and Aquawoman and all those Warner Brothers characters. And the thing I learned quickly is K 
kids, six to 12 year olds or whatever, they don't care what station it is, they'll go where they're interested in. And the opposite is true of more mature women. So daytime, to get a woman, in those days more women were staying at home than there are now in the workplace, so it was dominated by women's audiences. To get them off of 30 years of watching as the world turns, <laughs> to watch all my children is much harder than getting a kid to go away from Scooby-Doo to right. Jackson 5. So I did, so we did well. We went in both areas uh, from third to first, uh, mostly because I was at the right place at the right time, not because I really did anything but was a cheerleader. And they, I think they put me, I, I never gave up, I always had my toe in prime time. You did, okay. and was that sort of considered the the ideal of the of the sectors. Yeah, well, prime time is where the where that everybody uh, was a big deal. Right. Uh, daytime and children's and specials. Sports was a big deal, especially at ABC with Moon Arledge. But prime time was where it was at. Of course, then there was the movie business, which was even more elitist. Right. But I was in New York, and it was very difficult. What in prime time to get it, you know. There was no video. Casting was impossible, and, and I discovered early uh, that maybe I should work more closely in California. So I convinced ABC to let me move two summers in a row for the summer period to California, and that's when. Uh, and now everything's in California yeah. in the creative area. But then everything was in New York, even in the movie business, mostly. I don't know. One thing led to another. We had a bunch of hit shows. We went from number four out of three to, to, <laughs> to one, and uh, and that was at, and so prime time after you came out to California became your focus. Yeah, and movies for television. Barry and Leonard Goldberg really created. Marty Starger really created the movie of the week. I worked on that with Barry. That was extremely successful. We made you no know, Steven Spielberg's first movie and a lot of important movies and uh, we made them for very little money and it really, you know, we had a Tuesday movie of the week and a Wednesday movie of the week and a Saturday movie of the week and, uh, you know, we eventually, with Marcus Welby and Happy Days and... Well, Lord I was going to say about Happy Days, I heard there's a pretty amazing story about how that came to you. Can you share, was, is it true there was, we have a snow out to thank for that? Yeah, I mean, I've always had the feeling that um, it's kind of like... I don't want to go to a lunch, a business lunch, where at the end of it, we haven't achieved something. Right. I always think that you you uh, you fill in the dead spaces with productivity. Mm-hmm. Now it's exercise, but in those days it was productivity. <laughs> and uh, I was flying from New York to Los Angeles with Tom Miller. I was at ABC. Tom Miller was at Paramount. He was the head of development at Paramount with my wife and my three-year-old, three-month-old son, who is now 46, maybe. <laughs> uh, so it was a while ago. And I said to Tom, let's create a show. We have nothing else to do. We're snow- <laughs> we, were, we were snowed in for like five hours. So we wrote a thing called New, uh, New Family in Town. And then we didn't know what to do with it. And I. one of us said to the other well Gary Marshall is doing Love American style and as you know Gary Marshall just passed away 
he became very much part of my life all the way through the movie business. And he took it and turned it into Happy Days. We made a pilot. It did not go on the air. Uh, out of that pilot, George Lucas found Ron Howard, not the other way around. I couldn't get the pilot on the air at ABC because I didn't have the clout to really get scheduling done. And the research department kept saying the 50s won't work, the 50s won't work. So we tried to prove them wrong, and we made another pilot, and we still were having trouble. And then American Graffiti came out, and then Grease came out, and then Henry Winkler went into Happy Days, and then the second season of Happy Days, we turned it into a three-camera show from a one-camera show, which meant we had an audience. Yeah. And that helped my career. <laughs> so at a certain point, Diller leaves for Paramount, and two years later, you get a phone call. Can you explain what went down at that point? Well, it wasn't obviously quite like that. He left to become the chairman and CEO of Paramount at 30, I think. Um, that was good because the chairman of Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount, was this great believer in talent, and Barry is unbelievably talented, and he took Barry there. And was he, this Blue, Blue Charles Horn? Charles Bluehorn. Yeah. I stayed at ABC. I got promoted to the head of the West Coast. We did very well. One day, Frank Wells, who later became, years later, my president at Disney, wanted me to come to Warner Brothers. And Barry heard about that through a friend of his, and then he called me up and he said, how about coming to Paramount? And I said, well, what's, why would you want me now? By the way, television in those, now it's not that way at all, but television in those days was very déclassé. I mean, we were like the minor leagues. Right. And, you know, the Bob Evanses and that world of Sue Mengers and the world of, of movies, they were, the, they were, they were it. They, they got the better tables at restaurants. We, <laughs> we, we went in through the back door. Um, I said, well, uh, why are you calling me? He said, well, I hear you now return your phone calls and <laughs> you've cut your hair. And, right. And you, you, you're together. And uh, so I did. I went, uh, I negotiated the deal at the Montreal Olympics. I was out at a payphone talking to Barry about, he was saying, what kind of car do you want? I said, I got a car. <laughs> I've never been offered a car before. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, Bruce Jenner, was running around winning the decathlon. While you were on the phone. Yeah, missed I missed it. the whole no, thing. No. <laughs> I, I think I got off the phone as I saw him running around at the end with a flag. <laughs> but I was negotiating a deal with Barry, and uh, I went to Paramount, and that turned out to be a pretty good move. Yeah, well, so I believe you were there for a decade, and the during that time, Paramount also goes from, from last to first. And I wonder if you can describe or explain how you did that because you've said quote this is a business based on 10 to 12 decisions a year close quote I imagine you're referring to whether or not you what you do or don't green light but I mean there what are the things that you as an executive at a big studio like that spend your day thinking and worrying about what were what were your focus what was your focus at that time well it wasn't me it was Barry and me and our group I think I brought a lot of enthusiasm to the uh company, but I, I, I laugh, I think about it now. Barry used to get so 
angry at me because I would refer to movies as shows. <laughs> I spent a decade, right. he said, you've got to call them movies. <laughs> You're not going to be able to get anybody on the phone. Right. And he and I, and I, I give him most of the credit of this, on the strategy of not betting you know, the company on one movie, on, on doing it the way we did television. We did the movie the week together. We didn't think about it. We just, you know, well, is this a good idea? Is that a good idea? So it's instinct. We also have similar taste, I think, going for quality. And, and within, I mean, I got there in September. We had no movies for the next summer. So I immediately, this is now eight, nine months away, yeah. <laughs> got a sequel to The Bad News Bears, Done and Out. And I acted like it was television. You know, nine months is a long time to make a pilot. It's right. not a long time. So we were like TV guys. And he kept saying, uh, and the the press, the, uh, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, TV guys, and Paramount had, had a kind of a dry streak, and uh, we had started a movie based on tribal rights of a Saturday night, and we changed the director, we put in John Travolta, because he had done Cotter for us at ABC, and he had done The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, so the first kind of movie that came out, the that the two of us together had anything to do with was Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> I didn't even know. We didn't know it was even a musical. I'm, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in line uh, to go skiing in uh, Vail, I think, and it may have been Aspen, I think it was Vail, and I'm at the bottom of the line. This is the, before the movie comes out, and there's a guy with a little radio helping you get on the chairlift, and I hear Staying Alive, and then I get to the top, and the guy who's helping you get off the lift is playing Staying Alive, and then I go into the... <laughs> cafeteria to get lunch and they're playing Staying Alive and I called up Barry and I said I think do we have a musical here what, <laughs> what is going on the Bee Gees you know the Bee Gees right. were cold at that point right. and uh, John Travolta just exploded obviously in that and then the next summer we had uh, Grease we had Foul Play with Golion and Chevy Chase we had uh, it just it, we just got lucky making the kinds of films we made at ABC, uh, you know, we made the first uh, uh, That Certain Son with Hal Holbrook, the first movie about the father-son where the father came out to his son as being gay. Mm -hmm. We made a lot of interesting stuff. We really continued that, and I also continued that when we went to, to uh, Disney. It was a strategy that grew out of being... I always thought it was like the, for uh, the two of us, and I don't know if this is true. I think it's true, and... Uh, is that when the and certainly we're not the Beatles, to be honest. With you, but I I learned that the Beatles were the Beatles. But then they went to France and they played like you know fifteen hours a day. And by the end of their stay, they they found who they were by just the volume of and the hours that they played. And in a way, although it's not in the music business and it's not even obviously it's not at the level of of, of them. But we, that's what Barry and I had to do at ABC. ABC was fourth among three in every area. And we were always coming from behind and we were always ready, you know, to figure out how to, what, what are we gonna do when we get fired? I think that mentality of not really being, I mean, nobody ever, I would call Jim Brooks, who was doing the Mary Tyler Moore show. He didn't even want, they didn't want to talk to us. We were so, <laughs> we were so unimportant. This is Un when you're at Paramount now. Or is, even still at ABC. ABC, Paramount. Finally, yeah. Jim Brooks agreed to do Taxi. Right. We were Paramount. And finally we were, and then 
and then we did uh, Turners of Endearment. So, yes, we finally became good enough to be in the majors, but we were in the minor leagues for a long for time. For a long time. Well, over the course of your time there, we should note there just the variety and, and quality of a bunch of these movies. Ordinary People in Turners of Endearment both won Best Picture. Ordinary People, the fact that you... Entrusted Robert Reds. Uh, Reds was excellent. Uh, the same year as Reds, you did Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I know you were very much behind. Beverly Hills Cop, Flashdance, Footloose, we could go on and on. But the one that seems to be a, a particularly interesting story is Raiders of the Lost Ark, because I want to read something from roughly around that time and, and just ask you for your reaction. Quote, Eisner was so captivated by the Raiders script that he persisted in negotiating, even though Diller favored passing, a deal was finally struck. It was more favorable to the producers than any deal Paramount had ever made. The studio did not stand to make any profit until the movie grossed more than $40 million. Close quote. In the end, it grossed just shy of $250 million. So what was, in that case, where you're... It seems like a nice example of a, of a calculated gamble. What, what Explain your thought process with something like that. Well, it wasn't really my thought process... The, the script, I don't know how the script came to us, but it read the, the opening scene with the ball rolling in the cave, read like in today's world, using today's figures, it would be like a hundred million scene. And I remember very well the meeting with Barry. And in this particular case, Charlie Bluthorn was in the room and he was never in the room. He happened to be in California and he was hanging out. But he really was not involved with... Barry was really the boss, but but he was the owner. And we all... Barry and I like, both liked the script. Uh, Barry's concern about it was this budget was going to be insane. I was more, like, impetuous. We can't let this go. This is The script is so great. It's, it, it's, it's, it's unique. It's different. And Steven Spielberg is going to direct it, and George Lewis is going to produce it. And... We, we have to have it. And Barry would say, we have to have it, but you're going to break the studio if it doesn't work. And then Charlie Bluthorn would sit there like he was making an acquisition. Had nothing to do with the movie business. And he, I remember he had a pad and he was writing down, I don't know, whatever he wrote down when he bought a bumper company or right. a coffin company right. or whatever he bought. <laughs> and we decided to do it. And I went and met with, and I, I mean, Barry put a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> which was not unusual. My thought process was that Stephen had maybe had his only, not a real failure, but a, 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 it wasn't one of his hits, which was 1941. Yes, yes. And, uh, and George had just made, I think, the, the second Star Wars, which was very expensive compared to the first. And I thought they both would want to prove to the world that they could make a movie for a reasonable amount of money. And they've, by the way, they proved that through their whole career. They are not crazy, outrageous spenders. But I went and met with them. It was an enlightenment to me for the, my whole career. Because Stephen said to me, I can make a movie at, at any cost. It is you guys that screw it up. I can make a movie with an 8mm, with a 16mm. You all demand all this stuff. And I said, well, just tell me how you're going to shoot this movie and not be the most expensive movie ever made. He said, okay, take the scene where they go to across the Pacific to wherever they went in this big, you know, dated four-engine, whatever it was. 
he said, I am going to make a canvas wing, just the end of the wing. I will have the door you get on the plane on a sound stage. You'll go in, you'll see the end of the wing, and then I'll have sound effects for the engines, and then I'll have a little line that goes across a map that shows where they went. And that'll cost me a dollar eighty-two instead of building the plane or buying yeah. the plane. And that convinced me on one side. And then George Lucas, in my conversation with him, again said, if you're going for perfection, you're going to fail. You have to go for excellence. And we can do this movie excellently. And by the way, the budget was $18 million, for which they came in on $18 million, plus a little bit extra because we went with Harrison Ford because Tom Selleck wasn't let out of his CBS contract <laughs> by Bob Daly, which I'm still angry at Bob Daly right. about, but I was very happy that we had Harrison. Right. So, yes, and they delivered it, and I took my then, probably one of my sons, like he was at eight years old, to the, to the uh, screening of it, and you just knew right away this was like the real thing. Yeah. So not that long thereafter, a few years, Bluthorn dies of a heart attack, and Martin Davis succeeds him as the head of Gulf and Western. And my understanding is that issues arose that essentially led you to want to get out of there. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Issues is an understatement, <laughs> and, it, and, and it relates to both Barry and me. Nobody was allowed in the Gulf and Western Empire to talk to Paramount with the exception of Charlie Bluthorn. He loved Paramount. And now he dies, and all of a sudden it's a new world, which is fine, that happens. But Marty, who had brought Paramount to Gulf and Western and was a publicist, had his own views about Paramount, which were peculiar. And later he told, I think, Jeffrey Katzenberg that he didn't really want, didn't really see me as an executive because I was like a kid on the floor playing with blocks. That was the quote. I thought, yeah, that's, that's good, I like that. <laughs> but there came a time when Barry really got fed up and he told me he was thinking about leaving and that forced me to think about the same thing. And just by circumstance, he went to Fox. I was close to going with him to Fox the, the Disney opportunity arose, and I thought maybe it was a good time we would each do our own thing, and I accepted the Disney offer. Not to rehash ancient history, but was the final straw, because just reading some articles at the time, Barry leaves, there's now the vacancy of him, and you have the Disney opportunity possibly happening, poss you know, in the works, but then Martin Davis goes and promotes the marketing chief, Frank Mancuso, instead of you, which seemed like an odd thing to do and comes back to what you're talking about of just him having some chip on his shoulder about you. Was that sort of the last straw? Like most things, yeah. airplane accidents, usually the two or three things are happening simultaneously. We never quite got that far, but I did shoot myself in the foot. The Disney thing came up two or three weeks earlier. I was at summer camp visiting my kids. I got a call from Roy Disney. Do you have a contract? No, my contract had expired. 
would you be interested? Obviously, I had followed the whole Disney thing for that year in, in the press. I seemed, I felt like I was making Disney movies my whole career, mm -hmm. whether it was Happy Days of Vern Shirley or Pretty Woman, even, oh, that was at Disney, but all these movies. And so I was interested. And at the same time, Barry leaves, and I'm asked to come to New York to meet with Marty. And I suspected that he was in that I was in California and Barry's in California and we had kind of a group in New York that were political that it wasn't going to work out well but that was okay and I met with the Disney people before I went I didn't go I said I'll be there in a day or two and I accepted the Disney deal I went to New York we had a very unpleasant meeting I think Marty was leaning toward figuring out a way to get rid of me. Although we had five shows in the top ten in television, and we were number one every year. If not number one, we were number two behind Warners. We were always number one financially. It was, it was going to be hard to just throw me out. Right, there's no cause. But uh, I think that's where it was heading. Yeah. And then I'm in New York, and I get a call from Disney saying they've decided they have to have a search. Having already verbally implied that it was a done deal. And me having told Morty I was going to right. Disney. <laughs> so I was gone. Right. I had accepted Disney. I had lost Disney. I hadn't lost it forever, but I, I didn't know that. Right, right. They were going to do a search. Oh, ironically, the, uh, so anyways, I'm gone. By the way, I'm only out for a week. This is all in a week. I think I'm never going to work again. For one week, I have some meetings and stuff. And I end up getting the job. Because George Lucas, ironically, who was friendly with an investor, said that the alternative for me was a guy named Dennis Stanfield, who he'd worked for at Fox, who he didn't like for some reason, didn't get his right deal. Right. So I was the lesser evil, right. a little bit like today's political campaign. <laughs> I was the, right. the least objectionable right. candidate. Right. And, you know, I was only 34. That's unbelievable. Uh, Frank Wells decided he didn't, they had wanted us to be equals. I didn't want to do it that way. Frank didn't either. So he went in his, in his one-two and uh, And you've written about how that was such a important thing. You've written a, a book about partnerships and leadership. And that is one of the examples where when he died years later, I think maybe you reflected more on, on it at that point because you really, it could have, if he had not been willing to work under that sort of an arrangement where basically you were chair and CEO and he was the president and COO, then it could have ended up not happening at all, right? Yeah, I, I knew it at the time. I knew what an incredible guy he was because what happened was they were interviewing me to be the chairman and CEO and Frank to be the president and COO. And then I'm in my, this is the day before, right? Or the two days before. Yeah. And I'm in my, I have a little security camera in, in, in the kitchen, and I see Frank jogging <laughs> up my driveway. <laughs> he was a jogger. Right. So he comes in, he's like sweat, it was disgusting, <laughs> dripping on the floor. I have one, well, we then made a phone call, but he says to me that the Bass brothers, who had made a big financial commitment to Disney, really wanted him to be number one and me to be number two. They knew him. Road Scholar, you know, 
high SAT scores or whatever, uh, lawyer. I'm like a, a creative person of some kind. So I didn't know whether Frank was manipulating me or what was going on. And I said, let's call them in Fort Worth. So we call in Fort Worth and I do a, I don't know, a Jimmy Stewart type speech for <laughs> three minutes about how the company has to be led by a creative force, not by a business force. And I went on for about, I don't know, a couple of minutes. I stopped, three second pause. Sid Bass says, we agree. <laughs> Okay. No, then, so that was fine. Yeah. And then we found out that the Disney side wanted us to be co. So I went to a meeting. Hard to believe I did this. I, I even today think, well, how stupid could one be <laughs> that they want us to be co-CEOs? And I said, now I was out of Paramount. I had no job. You know, six weeks earlier, I would have loved to be number two at Disney. And I said, no, I can't do it. I can only do it if I'm number one. And Frank said, that is the right thing to do. Wow. Michael should be number one. It is creative. The company has had a, a creative drought for 18 years. Since Walt died. And since Walt died. That, that we, that let's run it from a creative point of view. I'll be business affairs. We'll together go find a financial guy. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, what, what is going on here? I've spent quite a few years in this business and most people aren't that selfless. And then I found out over the next decade, he was completely that way about everything. So not only was it a, you know, I think he had as big an ego as mine, but much more in check. <laughs> and uh, we worked together, you know, very much like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett or, or all the others I, I, I went through in my, that book I wrote Bill about. Bill and Hillary, others. yeah. So, right. <laughs> although that's a little Those more complicated. Those are maybe, yes, I... Yeah. <laughs> Although, I'll t well, I don't know if you want to know my theory about that, but I will tell you this, and I'm, I'm not name-dropping my relationships with presidents because I don't really have them, I, but I did when I was at, at Disney, and we owned ABC, and I wanted Bill Clinton to do something for our news department. And I said to my wife, you know, I've got this big job. We never go out with anybody. We sit at home every, every night. We do a, so why don't I call up somebody interesting, we'll have dinner. She said, well, who? I said, I don't know, let's try it. Let's start with the Clintons. <laughs> so I called Bill Clinton's office. Right. I've never told this story, actually. I called Bill Clinton's office. Do you want to have dinner? I knew him like, not at all. I right. knew him like, you know, industry events and how are you? And maybe there was a White House thing I went to once. So I didn't really know him. It was, right. And the answer back was yes. <laughs> and it was going to be in Chappaqua. So I called my wife, Jane, I said, uh, we're going to dinner with the Clintons in Chappaqua. This is while he's still president or no, right after? No, just after. Okay. Just after. So he's in the news. He's a uh, pardon. Yes, uh, Mark Rich. Mark Rich. Right. <laughs> uh, supposedly he's taking the furniture that, that belongs to <laughs> the, White House. the White House, all this stuff. And we go to dinner in Chappaqua. And we're there, I would say... I don't want to exaggerate this, maybe till one o'clock in the morning. There's nobody left in the restaurant. The waiters are standing there on their feet asleep. And it was the most unbelievable dinner. And in the course of the dinner, yes, there was conversation about Mark Ridge, and there was some conversation about the furniture, which he did not take, and, <laughs> and, and all this stuff. And then and he, he was saying during this dinner, everything I've done, Hillary was behind. 
I wouldn't have been governor but for Hillary. I wouldn't have been this. I wouldn't have been president but for Hillary. And she was saying, well, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. She had just become senator, by the way. She was the big deal. Right, right. She just won the center of the state of New York. It, and she was like a cheerleader with her boyfriend, who was the high school football star who had broken his leg. Right. And no, did you know, Michael, that Bill had 18,000 people that showed up in Montreal? He had 22,000 people that showed up in Japan. She was like promoting a man that did not need, need to be promoted, right. having just been president for eight years. Right. And at one point he said, yeah, why do you want me at ABC? What is it about me that you would want? I said, you know what, you're just so darn interesting. And she said, that's why I married him, and that's why I'll always be married to him. And then they started touching and holding hands, and it was like I was in high school, and the couple in the back was making out, and you wished you weren't there. <laughs> now, they weren't obviously making right, out. Right, but right. It, it was, and I could tell in that moment right. that this was a absolutely real relationship. There yeah. was no phoniness going right. on here. And so just to be clear, the thing that you were talking to him about ABC was potentially to come do something on the air for ABC? Yeah, right. Like maybe host a show? Yeah, yeah. didn't happen. No, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I wanted him. He was just the president. He'd be great on Good Morning America, right. you know, twice a week or right. whatever it was. We never got to that because he, he wasn't interested. I tried because she was. this is when she was running for president the first time. I tried to convince the, uh, the campaign to let me interview the two of them together. The campaign was absolutely maniacally interested in making sure that they were separate, that she was her own person. And I was said to them, I can prove to you that this is a real relationship. Because right. I I was there and it was not made up. It was real. But they didn't want to do it. Well, it's and, not too late. There's uh, you got a couple more months before. No, I think people I think people now realize <laughs> realize how real and, and true it is. But it was sure. I don't even know how we got into this conversation. Well, no, it's interesting, but let's let's hone in on some of the amazing things you did there at at Disney for twenty one years, which is not a amount of time that most CEOs are at any any place, but I look, think I was the longest at that time, the longest in America, the longest surviving CEO. No, it's incredible, and and but obviously you were you presided over the animation revival there of the early '90s that was incredible and shaped a lot of our childhoods, my generation. So thank you for that. Also, a lot of live action films where you've talked about getting stars who were sort of down on their luck at that time and reviving them, whether it was. Bette Mittler and Nick Nolte and people like that, or taking making relatively low-budget films and, and smart choices like Good Morning Vietnam and Three Men and a Baby, and then also some bigger projects that were synergistic like Pirates of the Caribbean and, of course, the theme parks. So I guess, is it true that basically, you know, the way it was always portrayed in, in profiles and things, you just sort of lived and breathed and loved Disney as a place and everything it stood for. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I liked, I mean, I liked the environment. I liked the cleanliness of it. I don't mean content cleanliness, I mean real cleanliness yeah. of it. I liked the the people. I liked the enthusiasm. I went to college in Ohio. I felt like I was back in college. Everybody was smiled and uh, Disney attracted a kind, a kind of person. We we open ourselves up for, in the movie business particularly, for, you know, the contemporary directors and actors and so forth that, that were part of the scene, but we, the whole company I liked, and it was, 
kind of the, what I, the, way, the way I am anyway. It was like, hey, you know what? Hey, hey, like high school, let's go put on a show. And, and literally, they, you, I mean, you, we, you became a, a face of the company because of hosting the wonderful world of Disney in the 80s and stuff like that. It was, it, it, you'd have to be a, a Oscar-worthy actor to be faking the enthusiasm that was obviously there. Well, I'm not. I wasn't an Oscar-worthy <laughs> actor, and and I'm not sure the enthusiasm. Those they did about 250 of those. <laughs> by the uh, end, you would have. By the end, no, I was never any good at it. It was like it was. Uh, I couldn't remember my lines, so I had a teleprompter. <laughs> I I was starting to go bald, so they put this stupid thing on my head, and uh, but I but 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 we did it. But the that was that was just the the, the painful thing of trying at the insistence and the way by Frank Wells and also the Basses to show that the company had a rudder. I didn't know I'd be doing it for 20 years. I didn't know that it would be uh, that it would be as difficult as it was. My first time I did it, it was 62 takes um, <laughs> for like 30 seconds. Um, it, 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 it became bigger. It took me out of being private, private and, and more public. Um, but it did show Wall Street and Main Street that this company was being led. But it was being led in a much more cheerleading way than in a, you know, we had very good business practices. I came from a business family and I knew how to do that. I knew how to hire those kind of people. But, you know, for instance, you mentioned Three Man and a Baby. Three Man and a Baby was like many of the stuff, things that we did in everything, in every area was uh, extemporaneous. I was, I was in Paris uh, to sign with uh, Jacques Chirac, I believe, the first deal for uh, Disneyland Paris. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was December 23rd or something, and it was cold. And, and I went, I was staying in a hotel near the Champs Elysees, and I was walking on the Champs Elysees, and I saw pictures of three men and baby in French. I would have said the title in French, but it would be embarrassing to have it on, to have it on tape. Right. So I went in, and nothing else to do. And I took high school French, so I didn't know any of it. And I watched three men and a baby, these three French guys with a baby and uh, vomiting over them and, and other bodily functions and right. them trying to function. And I called up Jeff Katzenberg because it was the time change was fine for calling. I said, I don't know who made this movie. I don't even know the story. Right. But this movie has got to, this has got to be a hit movie. We got to go make this movie, and then he went and and got it made, got got the rights, and we had it. I think Leonard Nimoy actually directed it. We had a we had a uh, the French director. I think Michaud, uh, this nice woman, but she couldn't do it for in English. Yeah, and that was just you know, it came by the window. Right. It's it's uh, and obviously you have to organize where you're driving and what windows you're looking right. out at. Right. But we were looking at a, out at enough windows when things like Terms of Endearment would come up or, or Reds or any of those movies we made, Flashdance, that uh, we did. So what aspect of, of running Disney did you enjoy the most? If you could identify the thing that was the highlight for you, what was that? I don't know. I mean, on one hand, on the business side, this unbelievable growth that we had. I mean, it was with Billion Eight when we came and with 80 billion when yeah. I left I mean that, that was always fun to watch that that was on a business side but right. but on a on a emotional side I liked it when there was an audience the, the trouble with television 
and we have a show called BoJack Horseman, which is starting uh, today, yeah. third third season, unbelievably well reviewed, maybe the best reviews of anything I've ever been involved with. Maybe Lion King is up there with it, mm-hmm. but it's out there in the middle of nowhere. You don't hear about it. You don't feel it. Because uh, the audience oh. is just so much more fragmented now. Which is, it's not live. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke at Harvard, and, and the interviewer said, how many of you have seen BoJack? And the whole room raised their hand. I was at the uh, Ringling Brothers in, in speaking in Florida, where the audience is substantially older by about five decades. <laughs> and how many have heard of BoJack Horseman? And not one hand right. went up. So it was clearly <laughs> right. a demographic right. audience. But at Disney, I guess the most unbelievable moment in the whole 21 years was the downbeat of Lion King in Minneapolis when Judy and I had seen many rehearsals and I knew it was I knew it was coming, but when that show started and the elephants and the giraffes walked down the aisle and kids go crazy and you feel that audience. And you realize this was like started in a meeting where somebody said, let's do a movie about a, a lion in, in Asia. And then somebody else said, well, there are no lions in Asia, so we move it to Africa. I mean, that's the way this happens. And, and, and going to, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or whether it's Lion King live in Broadway or seeing a show at Disneyland live, there's something exhilarating about it. Yes, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, the animated films, reading all the great things about it, going to a, a theater, standing in the back. There's something there, but there's nothing like being in, the, in a Broadway theater. It could be in Shanghai, where they have uh, Lion King playing in a theater, or it could be anywhere in the world. That opening five minutes, well, aren't or you? the opening of the second act. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's just unbelievable. And aren't you responsible also for Disney acquiring the New Amsterdam in, in New York, I think? I am. I am. Because that's a beautiful thing. That's It's been revived. It's it's incredible. And the Disney theatrical division that started under your watch, people were saying that this is terrible. We don't need to Disneyfy Broadway. And there was all this complaining. And meanwhile, every show that has gone on there, uh, particularly, I think, Lion King and Aladdin... Uh, which is currently going, are as good as anything that's out there. Well, it's again, it's evolutionary. I, we had done a couple of plays at Paramount. They were fine. It was agony. And I come from that world, and I decided for Disney we would not do Broadway because you could do for 2,000 theaters the same amount of work as one theater. So we didn't. And then... We watched Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh create these events. And then we did Beauty and the Beast as, a, as an animated movie. And the review in the New York Times said, this is the best Broadway show that's not a Broadway show. <laughs> so we had lunch one day, and every Monday we had our staff lunch with the heads of all our department. I brought up Beauty and the Beast, show we do it on Broadway, and you know, nobody, we didn't have a department, nobody really wanted to do it. And I said, you know, the, the pass-fail is whether or not we can bring those inanimate objects to life. So Jeffrey Katzenberg and I decided, you know what, let's do a little test. And we were on vacation, and they came up and they tested the, the teapot and uh, the joke with the teapot, and it worked. So I then said, like crazy, we're not going to use anybody from the outside. 
Orlando, we have more talent in Orlando than all of New York combined. The whole thing is going to be done in, uh, be done by our company. We're not going to be in the Dramatist Guild. We're not going to follow any of the New York rules, which are very difficult. We hired a guy, Rob came in, he had directed a show on the uh, Queen Mary that I saw. We hired him off the Queen Mary to direct <laughs> to direct a show at Disneyland. Right. I said, can you direct on Broadway? Yeah, why, why not? It was like high school. And right. we then did Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. That was the first. Giant hit. Yeah. All over the world. Yeah. And then I sat next to Marion Haskell, who's a was the, the Salzburger family yes. of New York Times. And she was pushing to clean up 42nd Street, as was an architect, Bob Stern on our board, which I ignored, of course. And I, just another charity thing with people wanted money, so I kind of ignored, <laughs> I kind of ignored it. And then going to our Monday lunch, Joe Roth said to me, why aren't you doing The Lion King? And I said, you know, I, we can't, I can't quite figure it out. You can't do like The Cowardly Lion in the movies, and you can, we can't redo Beauty and the Beast. He said, well, you should really do it. So I got to lunch 30 seconds later. I said, why don't we do The Lion King? <laughs> and everybody was the same. How do you do it and so forth? The guys who knew most about Broadway were, were the guys in animation. And they were like, yeah, I don't think you can do it. And I finally got annoyed. I said, you know what? I did, I did personally, outside of the realm, Beauty and the Beast, I'm going to do The Lion King, unless you guys come to me in the next hour and or the next day. And Peter Schneider, Tom Schumacher, came to me and said, we'll do it, we'll do it, we want to do it, and give us three days. And they came back in three days and said, there's a director who's worked in Indonesia, she works with puppets, Julie Taymor. And we said, let's uh, do a test. And sitting behind you in this room is one of the maquettes that, that, yeah, she, that she yeah. showed me at that test. So we'll do it. And at the same time, I'm driving on 42nd Street with my son and a friend of his who were playing hockey. And I drove past the New Amsterdam and I said, you know what, why don't we just go look at it? And we got in. I think we just pushed the door open. <laughs> and it was raining. And it was raining inside and outside. And you could see on the walls the great what it was. Yeah. And I had Lion King in the back of my mind. And I don't want to do I, 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 because it, there were a lot of conversations with a lot of people. It wasn't, I was there, but I don't want to take no, all the credit for it. Sure, sure. But I did call Frank Wells. Yeah. And the next time we were in New York, which was like two weeks later, we went and he was propositioned twice by hookers outside. <laughs> I was a little insulted though, they came up to, yeah, right, yeah. They came up to him twice. And it finally, I met with Rudy Giuliani. And I said, I don't know if we can do this because of these adult porn shops now. And he said, they'll be gone. And I said, well, you know, in all due respect, there is the ACLU. Really? You really gonna get rid of it? He said, look me in the eyes. I said, no, they'll be gone. <laughs> they won't be gone. He said, look me in the eyes. So I'm like scared. <laughs> so I look him in the eyes and he says, they will be gone. I said, okay. Right. And so, when, and so the combination, the confluence of the uh, Lion King coming to life and the New Amsterdam Theater 
was what made all that happen. But then we didn't want to open with The Lion King, so we did a weekend of King David, which was Tim Rice and Alan Menken's musical, which hasn't been done yet, which is the second greatest biblical story. Other than the Christ story, it's a fantastic story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is a great musical. The trouble is it was about like three hours long. So. <laughs> but they've never done it. Well, it totally, the theater, what you did with the theater and the and the shows changed Broadway. And that's a big part of what I cover. So I think it's terrific. Yeah, but just, I just want to make it really clear. Cause, Collective. Because you know, yeah, I'm representing in this conversation. Yeah. A lot of people. No, I totally get it. And I think every listener gets that you're... You, Certainly shared the credit. Um, the other thing that you've sort of suggested might be one of the things you're proudest of about the Disney years was what has been called one of the best acquisitions of the 20th century, which is when in 94 you guys bought Capital City's ABC, which came with not only the ABC broadcast network, but also ESPN and Lifetime. And I guess I just wonder, why did you go after that? What was your thought process? Obviously, it worked out very well but what was the thought process again the confluence of a bunch of things going on at the same time one was I couldn't figure out how we could keep growing the way we were growing right. I mean we, <laughs> I, I, we kind of run out of ideas I worked at ABC as we've discussed for a decade I knew it well I knew Tom Murphy and Dan Burke the people that ran it well Warren Buffett was a major shareholder the major shareholder I had tried twice before to acquire it, much less of a price. Every time I asked Dan Burke for how's ESPN doing, he would send me the figures, and then two weeks later, he was underestimated by half. <laughs> I was at ABC when we put on Monday Night Football. I knew Rune Arledge very well. I knew ESPN very well. I knew that the growth of cable was there, and I believed in the software, not the hardware. And at this one conference, I was kind of being offered CBS to buy. It was like a, it was like a white sale. Right. <laughs> so I went up, and I did do this part of it. I went up to, although we had talked about it internally and all of that, I saw Warren Buffett in the parking lot, and I said to him, you know, I just was offered CBS by Larry Tish. You know, they didn't have any cable. Right. And maybe we should do that. He said, fine, we should do it. I said, really? He said, yeah, walk with me. So I walked with him across the parking lot because they were going to play golf. And there was Tom Murphy. And Warren says to Tom, Michael would like to consummate the deal. And, Warren, and Tom said, really? And Tom wasn't quite sure. I think he said $18.8 billion, which would be the most ever spent for acquisition at that time. The next morning I was back home and I was on the treadmill and I called him up to get the 18.8 billion down. And he said, Michael, it's 18.8 billion or not at all. And by the way, I had the same conversation with him two years earlier. Really? Same amount? No. Different amount. Two billion less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, not at all. Yeah. And, and then they went and did something else. So I said, yes. And uh, by Friday we had uh, done the deal. We didn't do any due diligence. We didn't. We, we didn't have to. Right. Amazing. First of all, we knew they were honest people. We knew they were not screwing around, and right. we knew the, the assets. And by the way, it saved the Disney company because yes, the Disney company was still doing very well, but we weren't growing like we had been growing. Maybe we were growing at twenty percent instead of eighty percent, or whatever it was. And 
we would have been a, as we became, uh, a target for a takeover. Yes. Without the capital cities ABC and the ESPN growth, we would have been taken over. And actually, Comcast tried to take us over. But uh, well, you mentioned the the takeover, and there were a series of things there in the in the years very soon after the ABC deal where just crazy things happened. And I I just briefly hope we can knock off a few of them and just your thoughts on what what you make of each of them or what you made of each of them at the time. Obviously, the first thing, which I think happened very soon after that, was Frank Wells died in a plane crash and shook up every... It seems like things were never the same after that. Well, they were never the same after that because of the way I made a mistake in his replacement. They actually were exactly the same. Nothing had changed inside the company. What happened was he died on Easter Sunday. Let's see, I had had a bypass operation the previous July, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, We bought Capital Cities ABC made the deal in the fall. Mm-hmm. We closed in like uh, January, February. He dies on Easter. So now I have a company without its president having had a life-threatening experience and a company twice the size, the biggest company in the media business. And, and then the natural replacement on paper was Michael Ovitz. He had decided to leave CAA and all that emotion that went with that. He didn't get the job at Universal. His associate got at Ronnie Meyer. And everybody, every media, Warren Buffett, Tom Murphy, everybody thought this was the most brilliant move ever made. To bring him in. Oh, yes. Yeah. He was on the cover of magazines, the most powerful guy in Hollywood. Right. He was a... I'm not, a, I don't think, a decade younger than me, but enough younger than me that it would be a very comfortable thing. It just didn't work. He was the opposite of Frank Wells. It, it, was, it was a partnership that was born in hell. And whether it was his fault or my fault is irrelevant. And you'd known him, though, for a long time. Forever. Yeah. And there was a big question about whether it could work. But my wife so much wanted me to live right. and figured that this would take a big pressure off of me. One of my sons thought it was insane. Um, I was ambivalent. Uh, very quickly, I realized it was a mistake, but it, it was done. And it, took, it only took a year to get out of it, but it was, it was a year of difficulty. And in that year, on one other event happened. After my, my operation, and after Frank had died, rightly so, Jeff Katzenberg wanted to be promoted. I'm not sure that was the right idea, but... He wanted to be promoted to replace to Wells. Frank, yes. Yeah. Or at least a much bigger job. Roy Disney, who did not like him at all. Did not like Jeffrey. At all, because, forget the reason, but Jeffrey didn't probably treat him the way Roy would have wanted to be treated. Definitely. Said to me, if you make him the president, I will start a proxy fight. So that was out of the question. Couldn't do it. Had to let him go. Were you able to communicate that to Jeffrey that it was Roy that was the no because of confidentiality? You just no, I just didn't think it was appropriate. I didn't think uh, I didn't want to blame somebody else. Uh, I didn't want to put Roy in that position. But at the same time, Jeffrey's somebody that you'd worked with since Paramount, right? Yeah. Oh no, it was. Uh, I don't know whether he would have been the right person to be president at that time. He certainly would be later. Right. But it would have been better. 
I, I probably could have talked him into doing something less than that, but Roy made it absolutely crystal clear, and it was it, it wasn't worth the fight. And the reason Roy mattered so much was that he c- controlled a, a large chunk of the of the board. No, he looked like Walt. Any of the name Disney. <laughs> but so other people. But you're saying so other people would follow him no matter what. It's just he he, he could be a troublemaker. <laughs> uh, he was he represented the Disney culture. He appeared to be a very nice man. He was a nice man. But he had a point of view. Yeah. He would been treated. He had been treated terribly right. by Walt Disney, and he and 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 Walt called him the idiot nephew and things like that. And he didn't want to be treated that way. He just wanted again, respect. Again, yeah. exactly. And it was just, I I probably in hindsight should have fought all that. So that had happened as well. Sure. And we had an alternative for him who was very good, which was Joe Roth. But that was the beginning of a series of things. Uh, Frank's death, my operation, Jeffrey leaving, Capital City's acquisition, which was a very big positive. Uh, I got I got Bob Iger in the deal, which was you know very good deal, good thing for us. Then but you then, had the Weinstein's. Well, that was just a peripheral pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, you know they they they, they delivered great product and and, right. and we were happy to have them. And we bought them for the right price and. And yeah, we had uh, there were there were a few battles. But what was that basically about? That they wanted to do things beyond movies, and and I mean the final straw I remember I believe was Fahrenheit nine eleven. Which is it correct that you guys just felt it was sort of off brand for Disney to be taking on the president of the United States? Well, that's a whole other conversation. I had heard that I think Mel Gibson's company was doing Fahrenheit nine eleven. And I said to the agent that represented the Weinsteins, just so you understand, this fell out. Don't, don't go to the Weinsteins because I'm going to turn it down. And I have the unilateral right in our deal to turn it down. So I'm telling you in advance. Well, that didn't work. He immediately went to the Weinsteins, encouraged them to go do it. So they're kind of troublemakers. And I said we would release the film after the election, we, we I do not want to. The Disney company is a nonpartisan company. This is totally a partisan film. After the election, and I was and and so I was told it was over. I did not. I was then asked by somebody, "Do am I going? This is like four months later. Am I going to go to the screening?" I said, "What screening? A Fahrenheit 11. I said, "Why? I'll see it in the theater." No. What do you care? Well, you know, we do own it. What do you mean we own it? I made it clear we can't do it. Well, they paid for it through some fund that we didn't know about. I don't know. And then and, and, uh, the next thing I know, we do own it. And we put our foot down. Because I remember Hart, even while he was still employed by you guys, Harvey did a few interviews where he kind of disparaged you and the way it was handled. And, and I'm sure that didn't go over tremendously well. You know... It actually didn't bother me. I am I'm thick-skinned, and, and I I actually enjoy difficult people who are creative. I like actually Steve Jobs, maybe. <laughs> Steve Jobs, another issue. But yes, I sometimes creative people are, are, are difficult or they have issues. It doesn't bother me. If they deliver to us, as long as they're not doing anything illegal or unethical, I'm fine with it. Yeah. So it wasn't that. It was it was it was uh, frankly because they were entertaining and. Areas that had nothing to do with making movies, 
Talk Magazine and all these things and why that we were losing a lot of money with them. And that's different than having a difference of opinion. And we started losing a lot of, I mean, really a lot of money. We put our foot down. And unfortunately, they were the darlings of the New York press. I was the heavy, but that's okay. I was responsible to the Disney shareholders. I was not about to let them lose, as they have for a lot of people, lose a lot of money. On the other hand, when they first started, they were making some money for us with very good films. And is that a consideration? Was prestige the... You know, Oscars, was that something that, that you felt it's worth having this company? Because they do, you know, Disney movies are terrific, but at that time they didn't even have an animated Oscar category. So here was a chance to have some no, prestige. No, no, it was nothing about that. It was, it was uh, didn't even cross my mind. I, Charlie Blue on Paramount used to say, I don't want an Oscar. I want, I don't want the, I want, I don't need that award. I want the Bank of America award. <laughs> so no, right. it wasn't that. It was that they, I liked the movies. Right. They made really good movies, and I thought they'd be great in the overall Buena Vista library. Right. And we paid $70 million for the, this library and their continuing work. And Harvey Weinstein is a brilliant filmmaker, as is his brother, but Harvey also has the charm. And they, they, they work their ass off. They're in every film festival. And I thought it was great to have their product until... And our arrangement was that they were going to continue doing this. And when Harvey wanted to go and be Cecil B. DeMille, whatever it was he wanted to be, it, be, it became, uh, it didn't work. But these things all kind of came, came together. And so that confluence of just t- having to fend off crap from every direction and all of that, do you think that directly resulted in this situation where basically egged on by Roy Disney and I guess... Stanley Gold, these two board members, they were just gonna, they were out for blood. Is this basically, as you see it, why did the, why did your tenure at Disney come to an end? Well, it was a, it came to an end. I mean, it's all reported in hindsight, the way you're just reporting it. It really, as usual, no, things, would, are more, uh, things are more complicated. Yeah, I want to set it straight. I don't want to report wrong information. Our board never, and our company, never had a financial problem, never backdated options, never had an issue, ethical issue, moral composition of any kind whatsoever. We were incredibly successful. Then Enron happened. And then everybody started looking at boards. And I guess between maybe the worst board was Berkshire Hathaway and maybe the second worst board was Disney. although we were two pretty successful companies. Our board was considered a bad board because we had three architects. We had an African-American head of a school who was brilliant. We had a lawyer who represented me. So we had a board that in today's world of governance and all they want in the governance circle is a board of fiscally responsible people. I wanted a board of architects and professors and teachers we had the president of Georgetown University, uh, who I met through my son who went there, my grandfather went there, fantastic priest, was fantastic on issues we had in religion and so forth. All these people were murdered because they were on our board. So we had a board that was characterized as bad. In fact, they were fantastic. We never had a problem of any kind, but there was that cloud. There was the cloud of obviously the cloud of uh, Pixar, where we had done all the movies, and now Steve, who was a difficult person, as I'm sure you've read, <laughs> wanted us to overpay 
for his company and all of those things came together. And it just, I'd been doing it for 21 years and my view was, I don't want to kill myself here. And I'm, and I had Bob Iger. Now we, we, that was an issue too, because because of governance, they wanted a big search and everything. And when we started, Bob and I were probably his only two supporters. By the end of the search, it was clear that I had, was able to convince the board, our newly constructed board, that Bob was great. And that was important to you to have your to have a, a say in your success. Like I, I mean, I, I could imagine in a certain sense, if you see that you're checking out soon, you just say, you know, screw well, it, no. it's your problem. But you well, you, no, two reasons. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like to spend 21 years right and watch what we built go to hell. So there wasn't resentment to that in that sense of what was that this was coming apart in the way that it was? No, it was the opposite. It was, it was. I thought, by the way, I was also a very big shareholder. Yes. <laughs> I thought it'd be a good idea to have the company continue on the track we were on. Right. Um, I think Bob, brilliantly, because he's different than me, but equally as good or better, what he saw was the same thing I saw when we bought Capital Cities ABC. We'd had the growth to a certain point, to continue the growth, what do you do? He did what I don't think I would have done, which is great. He bought Pixar and bought peace with Steve for much too much money, in my opinion. Right. However, it all worked out well because they delivered. I didn't think they would deliver that many hit shows right. in a row. He then, on his own, because I had nothing to do with it, I had looked at Marvel many years earlier and not done it, he did Marvel and he did uh, Lucas, which we would have done together. So what Bob did is he protected the company. I think in the in the medium term, something's going to have to happen in the next five years. But right now, he used an acquisition strategy, yeah. where I used the growth from in, inside, plus Capital Cities ABC. But I just came to the conclusion, knowing that it would look like I was running away, that. The time had come as long as it was with Bob. I would not have agreed to it if it hadn't been Bob. I was not going to agree to it. The second choice, I think, was Meg Whitman. I wasn't going to agree to it on that. I was going to agree to it if, if they made the right choice. And it became unanimous because Bob demonstrated in the, in the conversations how good he is. Yeah. And, he is dem- and by the way, nobody knew that he was going to be as good as he was. I did, what I knew was that he would manage it well. That he would keep. By the way, he's kept almost all the executives, all the people there. There wasn't a mass, a new person in, and let's let's change everything. He followed through on Shanghai, which we've been negotiating together forever. Uh, he actually just sent me a picture of the two of us on the field, oh, that's where, there, where there's nothing but, <laughs> but uh, a field in the background. So it worked out well for him, and it worked out well for me. Well, in the last few minutes here. I just want to ask you, I mean, after 40-something years in a uh, public, in, in various public companies, you, you know, you now had a decision to make about what do you do with your next move, and you have done something very interesting by going to, uh, by forming, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, Tornante? Tornante? Tornante. Tornante. I was on a bicycle trip, uh, in Italy, and on every corner coming down a mountain was the word Tornante, and I got to the bottom, and my lawyer called and said, I need a name for your company, and the word Tornante was sitting there. I said, we'll call it Tornante. There you go. And, and Tornante is, 
as I understand it, privately held venture capital media, venture capital firm focused on new media and digital programming, and also some other interesting assorted projects like Tops Cards, which you bought. We bought the Tops company, which was a public company. We took it private. We we. I was in a public company so long, and it was all positive. It was all, you know, it created great financing abilities. We never had a problem in, in all the years I was in a public company. At the end, it got the reality of what can you do for me next and, and, and the governance issues that came out of uh, America made me think, you know, maybe now's the time to do it privately, and I don't worry about you know, I like the quarterly earnings at Tops, and it's a big company, and it's doubled since we've owned it, and it's all worldwide, and we and we do uh, we we transferred it to a digital company, and we're the largest because of Bazooka Candy Brands, which we own. We're the largest children's candy company. So, and nobody, we have a partner in Madison Dearborn who are fantastic out of Chicago, and it's just without any of that service. Yeah, you don't to, have to. <laughs> to, to use a Hollywood You don't have to answer anybody. It's and, right. Well, it's not that I don't answer it. I do. I answer the people who work for me. I answer my family. I answer right. a lot of people. Right, right. I answer myself. But right. I don't answer illogical questions. Right, right. And I don't, I'm not relaying what the guy who I have nothing to do with has been down a bad path. And I'm doing, you know, uh, television shows that I like and I'm doing movies that I like and I'm doing stuff that I like. Well, with the television shows, I mean, it does seem like BoJack Horseman is a particular passion project for you. It's something that I know it was important to you to own the show 100% and then now it streams out via Netflix and the story is sort of an absurdist comedy but it's also about the insanity of Hollywood and the inanity of Hollywood which you've seen up close for many years. What is it about this project and this model of owning it and then going out through a Netflix, which I believe you also invest in, what is it about all of that that appeals to you? Again, it's a matter of evolution. I'm sitting in the office of which we are now recording this podcast. A guy that works for me comes in and says, I'm with this 28-year-old guy, Raphael Bob Waxberg. He's, uh, he's on, I can't remember what show he was on, the writer's show. And he had three ideas, and he told me the three ideas, and he told me the idea about this horse of a head with a man's body, that immediately made me think kind of interesting. I remember Mr. Ed as a kid, a talking horse. He described to me the show, he described to me the, the uh, I then talked to obviously Raphael, we then made our own, we paid for ourselves, our own eight or 10 minute pilot. The depth, of it, I never thought it was about Hollywood, to me, it was about these characters who, you know, the the thing that I was attracted to it the most, and of course now people are saying I'm, I'm, I'm I was attracted to it because I'm living the BoJack life, which I am not, by the way. Yeah, you seem pretty happy. I don't take yeah. drugs. I'm not unhappy. <laughs> I'm not. But uh, here was a character who had been in a show like I had been involved with all my life, whether it was the Brady Bunch, or Happy Days, or Laverne and Shirley, or or the Odd Couple, or whatever shows we had done. He had been in one of those shows, and like the happy, like Happy Days or the Cosby Show, it was the number one show in America for seven years, and now it's been off the air for seven years, and now he's not getting recognized, and he's annoyed, and he's now gone over the top, of course, and he's he he's got he's a horse, and he has a relationship with a woman that's kind of odd, <laughs> and he's got a cat as his uh, as his agent, and 
Very clever stuff. And great voice actors, Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, Aaron Paul. By the way, we didn't even have deals with them. We just recorded with them. It's amazing. We recorded with them with no deals. And I don't think anybody, very few people understood what we had. We had uh, Mark Pedowitz over at the CW really, really saw it. Obviously, Netflix saw it. Most people didn't even understand it. And it is by far the best thing I've ever been involved with as far as reviews. And there, you know, even like... Other reporters had it in the top 10 shows our TV critic did. I, I've read great things from The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, everybody. And particularly now, this I think it's never been better reviewed than the third season, which for me is particularly amusing because it deals with awards campaigning, which is what I spent a lot of my time covering. And it just shows how ridiculous... Well, and the fact, the fact that he has been in this show and all he wants to do is play the lead in Secretariat, the movie. Right. So that's, right away, that's pretty funny. Right, and then you, right. have, then you have Mr. Peanut Butter, his rival, right. who is a Panglossian character, Labrador, who right. is a game show host. I mean, it's ludicrous, but they're all real, and they're all... So, you know, what I like about it, other than the fact I like the show, is I, I was involved with, I never owned, because they were owned by Paramount or ABC or whoever, but I, in, in, in certainly my more senior years, have come up with a show, or I haven't come up with it, Raphael, Bob Oxford gave the show, but involved with a show, financing yeah, show. Yeah, brought to life. That actually is contemporary. <laughs> it's like a person in a wheelchair at actually playing basketball. Right, right, right. I mean, it's like, it's like, <laughs> what is wrong with this picture? Here's right. a guy in his 70s who's doing a show that you would think he would be 35 right. and wouldn't even get it. And you couldn't have done this at Disney. <laughs> it wouldn't have been done this way. No, no. Um, so when you, when you today look at Disney, you've been very complimentary about Bob Iger and, and things there, but, you know, do you ever look at some of the challenges that a place like that now faces where... Yes, on the one hand, they opened the, the, I think it's now, I don't know if it's the biggest movie of all time, Star Wars The Force Awakens, or or quite up there. Uh, and yet, the stock doesn't go up because of the concerns now that people have about ESPN and skinny bundles and the way all of this works, that where it's just such a strange new world out there. What do you make of that? And do you think that, uh, do you ever hunger, you know, do you ever say to yourself, well, if I was there, this is this is how I would approach this. No, because I think they've approached it very well. The fact of the matter is nothing ever stays the same. The only thing that is consistent is content is the most important part of the structure of the entertainment business. And the structure has changed. And I think Bob and the group over there have addressed it as best they can. I think the great thing about Disney, which we really concentrated on, is that there are many cylinders and they don't all go up and down smoothly at the same time. And there are periods of time where the movie division is terrible and there are times when it's great, like now. There are times when the parks are blowing out, blowing out the lights, which they seem to be now. There were times that ESPN was 50% or more, which it may even still be, of the profits of Disney. And things are changing. And although I talk to Bob all the time, I don't really... I don't want to intrude on, on, on their strategic thinking. I still am a big shareholder. But the, the uh, you know, they have to do something. Now, they don't have to do it now. They could, you know, half a decade to do it. 
but it is changing and it's over the top is real and the globalization is real, but so is the problems of globalization and what's going to happen in England and here. There's a lot of, you know, international things, what's going to happen in Shanghai. It's not all, nothing always is right at the same time, but the brand, the, the protection of that brand, the protection of the ESPN brand are very important. And as a big, as a big shareholder, do you have any thoughts on who the successor should be? He's announced he's, he's on his way out. Who, who would you recommend? Well, I like Tom Stag. I liked Tom Staggs a lot. I hired Tom Staggs before Bob had ever been there. We hired Tom Staggs. I think he was very good. I thought that was a good choice. It obviously, just like any other partnership, wasn't working. Uh, I'm sure Bob. They will. Hopefully, they'll be better if they found it from inside. It's always better from inside. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, but they may not. I wouldn't say Disney's at anything like at a crisis point compared to all the other companies, uh, but I I would say that uh, they have to be vigilant. By the way, the stock has done great. There's nothing wrong with the way the stock has done. Right. It doesn't have to go up every single right, day, right. and it's over a hundred dollars a share, I think. Which is, I think, if you right if, if you took the uh, multiples to when I came in, I think it, it would be up from like. Three thousand percent or something. No, crazy. Maybe, maybe thirty cents to hundred dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's so it's so a lot of people have sent their kids to college. Yeah. On, on betting on Disney, and I think they 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 still will be able to. Well, yeah, and and I thank you again for so many hours of great entertainment. Congratulations on BoJack. Congratulations. I think your fiftieth anniversary is coming up next year. So a lot of exciting things, and I I really appreciate you reflecting on all of them with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.